become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report. Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Ranting Andy Hoffman. Ranting Andy Hoffman spent 15 years on Wall Street before shifting his focus to precious metals in 2002. Over the past decade, he has become a global expert in gold and silver analysis, and in late 2011, joined Miles Franklin Precious Metals as its marketing director. Andy, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, Ellis. After a significant pullback in recent months, the last few days have shown promise with a decent upswing. Have we finally passed the bottom with regard to silver and gold? Well, I never try to answer that question definitively. I just try to put out a mosaic of technical and fundamental factors that would suggest where we are likely to be. What we've had in the past 10 weeks is a complete annihilation of the sector based on Theoretically, if you remember, the end of quantitative easing, they were so keen on attacking gold and silver, they didn't even really come up with any evidence. They said that uh, Bernanke's comments suggested that, but they really didn't. They didn't say anything. The fact is, as I was reading an article yesterday just about this, is that they needed to knock this down because they're going to be announcing QE. And I don't just mean standard QE. I mean the end of Europe, saving uh, Europe from annihilation QE of massive epic proportions across multiple countries and continents, and it's going to be coming soon. I don't believe it's going to work, but I believe that it's coming soon, I think, from what we're seeing. And and as a result, we've seen massively oversold technical positions in gold and silver. We've seen uh, reports of massive physical buying, and it's really hard to believe that if we're not at the bottom, we're not pretty darn close. Have you noticed an upsurge in purchases at Miles Franklin during the last week? I would say we've seen it in the last two or three days. It's been very sporadic this year. We've had some of our biggest orders yet in our history, meaning there are some major players coming in, but it's been relatively quiet for the past month or two since the leap day violation. But I will say late this week, once we saw the turnaround, we've had really, really strong demand across the board. Do you recall what it was like in 2008 when this recession began? I noticed you referenced a Chris Martinson article that was written a few days ago. Were the same factors in place for precious metals back then? In 2008, the big issue was really my piece that I wrote today. It was just published maybe an hour ago about this very issue. In 2008, obviously, the problem was the banks. So the government still had some kind of political and financial capital left to bail them out. And the problem is this time around, they're the ones who need the bailing out, let alone the banks who have been zombies for four years. So my view is that this time around, my analogy is you have the 1993 World Trade Center attack, and then you have 9-11. Well, that's how I'm comparing 2008 to what I believe is going to come now, because this is about countries now. This is about a breakup of the euro. This is about a contagion that spreads to all 
of the over-leveraged nations in the world, and that would be in the Western Hemisphere, the Eastern Hemisphere, and eventually it's going to get to the United States. I don't know how it's going to happen or the timing, but I do believe something really tragic is going to happen with the European Union sometime this year. So the central banks will attempt to save the situation, but they won't be able to save themselves in the process. Right. Well, they're going to try. And I took a quote out from Chris Martinson because he said, I think we're approaching the end of the period where the central banks can influence, where they can say, oh, yeah, we're printing money and, and actually get the markets to go up. And I'm not even talking about their participation in the markets to manipulate them up. I'm talking about that there's an actual belief in 2008, even in late 2011 when they did the LTRO and the Fed swap facility, there was still kind of a belief that they could still influence markets and, and improve the situation. But my belief is that this time around, all they're going to people are going to see is hyperinflation because there's no one who really can believe that just printing more money is going to save Spain or Greece. In the case of Greece, they're pretty much going to just, you know, I think what they're going to do is renege on their debt and kick themselves out of the euro. And when that happens, you're going to see a spreading contagion because all the other nations are going to say, well, if they don't have to pay their debt, then we don't have to either. We had significant inflation in 1980 around the time that Reagan arrived in office, and then interest rates grew, which ultimately provided more incentive for institutions to lend money, which they did. Aren't any of these same factors in place now? It's apples and oranges. I mean, well, obviously the inflation wasn't good back then. We had a you know, terrible economy throughout the late 70s and early 80s as a result of that inflation. And, you know, that inflation basically started when we got off the gold standard. We had the Vietnam War, the guns and butter. We spent the money. We went off the gold standard and the Arab oil embargo. And as a result, we had raging inflation. But the biggest difference between 1980 and today was back then we had just, and I mean, when I say we, I mean the whole world had just gotten off of the gold standard. So they didn't really have debt. Remember, the gold standard is what keeps governments from expanding their debt. So from 1971 up until the present, governments have been able to, the equivalent of, build up their credit card. They had no credit card balances. Now they've maxed them all out. So back then, we didn't have that much debt, and it was possible to raise interest rates to stave off inflation. Now, however, we have such massive, massive debts that the Fed is, for instance, has ZERP until at least late 2014. They know that even a quarter-point increase and interest rates will cause massive, massive increase in debt service, and even a 2 or 3% increase in interest rates will just completely destroy the nation. It'll, you know, the deficit will go up by a trillion dollars. So the point is, we can't raise interest rates now like we could then. In fact, we're printing money and monetizing 60% of all the new issuance, and we'll have to do more next year because the deficit will be higher, and the U.S. Treasury will be even more untrustworthy. And just wait till we have the debt debacle because the debt ceiling is going to be hit right at the time of the election. And I believe that there's going to be more problems there, just like last year. So there's really no solution now. They will try to print money. But like I said, we've gotten to the point of diminishing returns where when they print money, it doesn't do anything. We're seeing collapsing economies, collapsing banks, and exploding debt. I think they're going to try it, but I don't think it's going to help this time around. So the cartel has no more juice. No. All they have left now is, you know, I call it, Money printing, market manipulation, and propaganda. The problem is, like I'm saying, the money printing's not helping anymore, so you can say all you want. And uh, I agree, they have no more tools left in their, or arrows left in their quiver. Now, we know there are a series of events going on that will take down the economy even further. We're assuming that, and it's probably happening. And, of course, there could always be some sort of tragic circumstance that we don't want that could bring the house of cards down immediately. Is there any big event that could turn things around and make everything all rosy again? No. There's no. Nothing. I mean, this is, you know, you, when you pass the point of no return, 
I mean, you, if you jump off a cliff, you can't say, well, I hope something will get me back on top. And we have passed the point of no return in debt. And I'm not just talking about the States. I'm talking about Japan, Europe, uh, even China, because China's in a very difficult situation. They may have no debt, but they also have a, a construction bubble that's crashing. And they have a communist economy that needs to feed 1.5 billion people. So they have the same kind of problems as we do. I mean, a different side of those problems, but everyone's past the point of no return now. And so the only solution is going to be the same solution that's happened to every fiat currency system in history, and that's going to be to collapse and reboot. And it's going to be very painful for almost everyone. A few people will protect themselves, but you know most people are going to get swept up in it, just like has happened in, throughout history. So that's pretty much a default of nearly every major economy in the world. Yeah, either through hyperinflation or through actual default. And I think you know a country like Greece, which really has no printing press, they're going to just default. They're just going to say, we're not paying. The people have, have spoken. They voted out everyone that's in office, and they voted in pretty much anyone else that they can get their hands of. And those people are going to probably say, we're defaulting. But then when you get to the bigger, these so-called leaders like the ECB and the Fed, they're going to say, look, our only choice is to print money. And it's going to be very transparent. Like I said, when you pass the point of no return, you can't come back. Well, I'm going to deem you a futurist for the purpose of my next question. Where do you see the country in the world five years out in 2017? Well, it's pretty far. I, I, I don't know how far things will progress. I'm not going to be a fatalist and say that it's all bad because I don't know. I just know what has to happen now. Where you know The math tells us that the currencies have to collapse. We have to have hyperinflation, unless the governments want to do the politically unpopular thing, which would be to just stop spending, and they can't do that. There's going to be a collapse. There's going to be a rebooting of the system. I can't tell you if it'll take two years or five years, but it's very likely that five years from now we're still struggling across the world from uh, all the money printing of 40 years. I mean, it takes a long time to clean up a mess this big. I was wondering about a week ago, and I can be an emotional investor, and I shouldn't be. When I saw the pullback in precious metals, I thought, well, is there no safe haven now? What is your response to that? Over the long term, are we actually safe in physical gold and silver? Yeah, well, that's their goal, is to make you feel that way, and they do it with paper. They attack uh, the futures, the ETFs, anything that you don't actually need real physical uh, gold and silver behind, and certainly the mining shares where they've demoralized everyone. I've been talking, I can't scream loud enough for, uh, for months and, and months and months about mining shares because you are not safe in paper precious metal investments. They may go up and they may not, but you're just as likely to lose your shirt in paper PM investments as in regular stocks. The only way to ensure you're protected is with the real stuff because there's no debt attached to it, if you haven't borrowed you know, money to do it and won't have to pay it back, you're safe. It will protect you over time as it has for thousands of years, especially with what's going on right now with all the money printing around the world. I am 100% in the physical, and I am 100% comfortable. There's not one ounce of fear in me that I won't be protected. I'm involved in bullion as well, but I have to ask, how am I going to use it to pay my bills and to eat? No one that I know of takes payments in bullion right now. Bullion is the most liquid of assets in the entire world. You can trade it in at any coin shop. You can trade it in plenty of places. People say, well, you can't eat gold. Well, you can't eat treasury bonds. Can you bring a treasury bond or a stock certificate into the supermarket? No, of course you can liquidate it. There's plenty of places to do so. You don't need to do it at a bank. You know, when it comes down to it, would you rather have something that's appreciating in value or something that's depreciating in value? I mean, you cross that bridge when it comes. And right now, as far as I know, you could still go to the supermarket. If things get bad enough that that actually comes into question, 
whether people are going to be taking different currencies at the supermarket, you're going to be very happy that you have physical gold and silver because it's going to mean the currencies you know, are collapsing. Again, in full disclosure, you're the marketing director of MilesFranklin.com and a sponsor of this program. How do we buy the physical? It's very easy. You can just call our brokers and ask. We're there every day. Do your due diligence on the Internet or just call me or email me. I'll tell you anything you need to know about the sector. But if you just call us, 800-822-8080, we'll be able to answer any question you could possibly have. And we can either hold it ourselves or you can hold it for us. Right. We have storage programs in the United States and particularly uh, in Canada. We're very proud of that program in Montreal. Just give us a call. Talk to us about your blog before we sign off. Sure. I publish five days a week, as does David Sheckman, founder of Miles Franklin. And it's archived on our website, or you can just go there and put your email in. You'll get it for free every day. I don't think you're going to find between mine and David's blogs, you're going to find a more comprehensive group of educational material on the sector anywhere in the world. Andy, thanks much for joining us today on the program. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with Andy Hoffman, Marketing Director for MilesFranklin.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. Michael Berry and his son, Chris Berry. In the late 1980s, Michael served as a professor of investments at the Colgate Darden Graduate School of Business Administration at the University of Virginia. He published a book, Managing Investments, a Case Approach. He has managed small and mid-cap value portfolios for Heartland Advisors and Kemper Scudder. Dr. Berry's well-respected publication, Morning Notes, reviews emerging technological, geopolitical, and economic trends. And he's the founder of the Discovery Investing Scoreboard, which we're going to talk about today. Chris Berry also has a strong interest in geopolitical and financial relationships, having founded House Mountain Partners. The firm focuses on emerging and developing economies and junior mining and resource companies that are poised to benefit from their growth. Chris holds an MBA in finance from Fordham University and a BA from the Virginia Military Institute. Both gentlemen are frequent lecturers and speakers in the resource sector and beyond. And I had an in-depth conversation with the two gentlemen yesterday at the World Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver, Canada. Michael, Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here, Alice. Thanks, Alice. Well, it is June 3rd, 2012. We've had an interesting few weeks. We had an interesting day on Friday. Was that short covering in your opinion? No, I think not. If you're talking, speaking about the gold market, I think gold investors are anticipating something from the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank. I think there's a strong whiff of deflation in the air. I don't think we're into deflation yet, but I think the Fed is very concerned about that. And I think the street, the speculators on the street and the investors on the street are into gold because they believe that the central bankers of the world will move to do something. Now, do you believe that the negative job report was an excuse for gold bugs to get back in? Yes, I think it was the catalyst. I think it was the issue that surprised everyone. The The expectations were for much higher job growth than the 69,000 that came out. There have been several other things that have been in the news lately, like slower growth in China, slower growth in India, slower growth in Europe, and obvious problems in Europe. And so I think this was a catalyst that really kicked the day off and almost immediately put pressure, upward pressure on gold and downward pressure on stocks. And that's what we saw on Friday. With the euro declining, and by the euro I mean the eurozone and and that economy just 
as a whole collapsing, driving the dollar up, that's not enough to keep the market suppressed like it's been. No, I, I think it's a, it's a sideshow. However, as we look at the Greek situation and the social disorder that's now being fomented in Europe, I think there's a chance for contagion in the banking system in Europe. And that contagion could go from Greece to Italy to Spain to Portugal. It could have a serious impact on the U.S. I think that the story of gold on uh, Friday, which was uh, was 50 or $60 up, first of all, gold had been oversold, but I think it was a flight to safety. I think we saw a flight to safety of the U.S. Treasury market, so we had even more negative yields generated and higher prices generated on the Treasury market on Friday as a result of what's happening in Europe, but also generally slower growth is being realized around the world. So before Friday came along, before we had this $60 pop in gold bullion, what was your attitude about the market? Is it it unchanged? No, I think the market's been discounting. If you looked at the uh, Vancouver Stock Exchange, the TSXV we call it, the CDNX, this is for 15 months, this has been discounting a harder world, a difficult world. We've had the TSXV index, uh, the juniors that we follow in this game, fall about 50%. That's a huge decline in any market from March the 7th of 2011. And the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is primarily larger cap stocks, has fallen about 21%. These stock markets that uh, Canadians deal in and that we deal in, in in discovery investing, they've been discounting difficult situation for months, for well over a year. No, it wasn't a surprise to me. The surprise was the actual number of jobs created, but that was just a catalyst that pushed everything around, that changed everything on Friday. Ellis, if I could just add to that very briefly. You know, if you take a step back, we're focusing on the U.S. and the jobs numbers and its effect on gold and, and what happened. But if you take a step back and look at the global picture, you know, you mentioned slowing down. You can take a look at what I usually use as a proxy for growth are purchasing managers' indices in various countries. So the Chinese PMI, any of these that you look at, the Eurozone, China, Taiwan, Thailand, they are all falling. And it's not a case where they were up last month, but you know they just ticked down this month. They've been in a general downward trend for the last six to eight to 10 months. And so you know what that tells me is the industrial metals space is going to continue to be under pressure. And I thought it was very interesting on Friday how when the jobs numbers came out, everyone sort of flocked to gold and it was up $60. And generally, when there's a big move in gold, There's also a big move in silver, and on Friday there wasn't really a particularly large move in silver, at least not one that I saw, and so that tells me that the market is looking at silver more as an industrial metal as opposed to a precious metal, and it puts more of a focus on gold, I think. Well, usually when there's nothing happening with gold, we can look at industrial metals as a a buy right now, and that's a large part of your world. Are are you looking at, at buying opportunities in a depressed market with regard to industrials? Absolutely. I think, you know, now is a time, we talk about this a lot, but now is a time to be a real contrarian. And Again, if you look at the broad macroeconomic data, it doesn't look very good. I mean, take, for example, India. This is a a country that you sort of take it for granted, but it's had an 8% growth rate for as long as any of us can imagine. And then recently, they just came out with their latest GDP numbers, and it was 5%. So that's a huge contraction in that country, and it's indicative of what's going on around the world. That said, 
We are big believers in the whole quality of life phenomenon, and this unfortunately isn't something that plays itself out over the course of, say, three months. It could take substantially longer than that. So, you know, we are looking at companies in the industrial metals space, so, you know, the lithiums, the graphites of the world that have one primary factor, and of course management is key, but that primary factor we look at now is sustainability. And when I say sustainability, what I'm really talking about is, is this a company that has the cash on its balance sheet, the short-term assets to survive this seemingly prolonged downturn that the industrial metals find themselves in right now? You're treating these stocks hypothetically as long-term bonds, more or less, because you may get in right now, but without any expectation of return for four or five years. Yeah, you'd you'd hope it would be sooner. Again, the factors that we use in our discovery scoreboard software would be, as Chris pointed out, sustainability. they got to be able to sustain themselves for one year or two years or however long it takes, but also potential. Do they have real potential to produce a world-class ore body or an important substance like graphite or lithium. I think going back to the issue of contrarianism, these stocks are very cheap. They've been beaten up, these junior mining stocks. So we like to use these three factors that we've just discussed to pick the winners. But you have to be a contrarian because right now this market is a very difficult market and it will punish you if you don't know what you're doing in the marketplace. Well, let's talk about the discovery investing uh, algorithm, if you don't mind, Chris. What are you sensing right now? If, if you were to prognosticate based on the research you're doing, where would you put your money next week or the week after? You know, Ellis, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm on a panel this afternoon here at the show, and the title is Strategic Investing. Where do you put your money? They let me know about this a couple of weeks ago, so I had time to prepare. And when I first got the title, I just drew a blank. I mean, if you look across the investment landscape, I mean, investing in 10-year bonds, for U.S. 10-year bonds right now, when you factor in inflation and taxes, I mean, it's a negative yield. So you would probably want to avoid that. But coming back to the the Discovery Investing Scoreboard and the algorithm that you mentioned, we sort of look at that to, to get a general proxy for the junior markets. And so right now, you know, we see a lot of uncertainty in terms of a lack of direction. People really don't know what to do. So what I personally am doing is... I'm still actively involved in this market, but I'm much more discriminating with the companies that I'm looking at. And it's not a one-way train in this market anymore. This commodity sort of bull run, the super cycle, and you have to be a lot more discriminating. And that's why the DIS, as we call it, is, is a valuable tool because it can give you an idea of what the crowd thinks of a given company. So it can either inspire confidence or plant a seed of doubt in your mind in terms of, you know, do I really want to invest in this tungsten play or not? Because... You know, it's giving you a pretty clear indication of what the market thinks, either positively or negatively. I guess we could look at graphite in that same vein, can't we? Tungsten was a flavor of the month, a yeah. flavor of the day a few years ago in graphite. You're not going to make any claims with regard to that sector right now, are you? Not particularly. It's been a great ride, to say the least. We started looking in depth, if you will, at graphite, I would say about 18 months ago, back when you know everybody thought, oh, graphite is just pencils. And then people started to get educated about the market and realize where well, there are current day applications in terms of steelmaking and next generation applications with respect to nuclear reactors and of course batteries, I have created an index on Bloomberg that has really tried to track the growth
growth of the industry. And when I say the growth of the industry, the number of companies, junior companies, that regardless of whether or not they're close to bankable feasibility or they are just staking a claim in Quebec, for example, that index now has, as of Friday, the 50th company just joined, and I'm tracking well over 100 projects. What you have seen is the index sort of wobbled into the end of last year, and then on the day, December 15th, 2011, something happened and the index just took off. And that was the real catalyst for, I think, a lot of the junior companies kind of changing their stripes a little bit and getting into this space. It peaked on about March 29th. And by the way, just so you know, this is a market cap weighted index that just tracks the, the aggregate price, okay? So it peaked on about March 29th and it's really wobbled ever since. And I think it's wobbled because people are a lot more educated about the space. It's much easier to understand, for example, than, than rare earths or selenium or some of these really esoteric metals and minerals. But bigger picture, longer term, you know, there is going to be more of a need for more of a specific type of high purity, large flake graphite on the market. And there are a number of companies outside of China, in particular here in Canada, that are well-placed to fill that void. And there's time to position yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like I said, this index that I'm tracking, absolutely, it basically it went parabolic and it peaked on March 29th and it sort of wobbled, hasn't really found its legs since then. So again, depending upon your window of time and your sort of investment strategy and philosophy, I think now could be a compelling time to get into graphite. Yes. Now, when we spoke earlier before this interview, uh, Michael, you were almost just a notch under emphatically stating that you expect to see a greater recession near depression at the end of this year and perhaps uh, the beginning of next year. Let me take the word depression out. That scares people. Okay. But it is But it is possible. But, yes, at the end of this year, we will have the Bush tax cuts will automatically expire, and we will have entitlement spending and military spending be cut unless our Congress does something. And the CBO has indicated that if the Congress does not move to act on those tax cuts and, and spending cuts, that we will have a, a severe recession in the first quarter to first half of next year. Now, a severe recession at this time with respect to the fact that we are deleveraging, that there's a lot of debt out there, would be a real problem for the economy. So, number one, the Congress, Republicans and Democrats both have to act. They have to do something. They probably have to push off these tax cuts. They would be smart if they would push them off for at least a little while. They have to do something about unemployment insurance. This all takes money. By the way, by the end of the year, we will go through our $16.39 trillion debt cap, and that's going to have to be dealt with. So a lot of the pressure will come off of the Fed and be placed where it should be placed in Washington and Congress. I believe because of Friday's action, the Fed and the central bank, other bankers around the world, are going to have to do some kind of easing to take the pressure off the various economies of the world, which are slowing now. They're all slowing. And so I think we could get a kick up in the markets. I think gold and silver could kick up again. We'll see tomorrow. It'll be interesting to see tomorrow when we, when we come into the market in the morning. There is the chance that we could have a very severe recession. Europe's already in a recession. German rates are already uh, zero. The real yield on our 20-year bond went negative on Friday. So, you know, there's, there's severe downward pressure on the economy. The Fed's going to have to act, and the government in Washington, the Congress, is going to have to act as well. If we're, in fact, in sort of a pre-Lehman state vis-a-vis -vis, uh, 2008, who's coming down, potentially? 
I don't think we're in the same kind of state that we were in 2008. 2008, we had a credit crisis. I don't think this will be a credit crisis. This is the aftermath of the credit crisis, where we haven't solved the debt problem in the country. But I do think the banks are under tremendous pressure again, and I think that's a problem for for the Fed and for the for the government as well. In 2008, there was no place for anybody to go. Everything suffered, including gold and silver. Is gold a safe haven now if we see something worse than what we saw in 2008? Uh, gold is a safe haven if the Fed and the central bankers of the world figure out how to go forward, how to relieve pressure on the economy. Yes, gold goes much higher. I believe gold goes much higher anyways. I would echo that and agree with it. I would just say that actions speak louder than words. And look at what central banks around the world are doing. They are now net buyers of gold, whereas for years they poo-pooed it and they were net sellers. And I don't know, 50 tons a quarter, something like that. I mean, that's that's substantial when you take into account the fact that these central banks were, were shedding gold for years and years and years. So despite all the money printing and the, the accommodative policies that are taking place, you know, they're sort of speaking one thing out of one side of their mouth, out of the other side of their mouth. You can sort of look at what they're doing, and you can see that they're buying gold. And that, I think that says volumes. Actually, they bought 500 tons of gold last year, yeah. central bankers. Yep. Think about this. They bought 500 tons of gold, but they're printing paper. There's, there's an interesting discussion we could have there someday. Is there, is there enough silver to cover the shorts, let's say, for J.P. Morgan? I don't know. It doesn't appear that there is, but that's one of these sort of open questions on Wall Street right now, and I think that that question has been rekindled or reignited based on you know the problems that the London whale has had and this 2 or $3 billion potential loss that they're sitting on right now. Interestingly enough, my answer is no, there's not enough silver to cover the shorts. The Chinese, about a week ago, uh, permitted the trading of silver futures. This is going to be interesting to see. The Chinese are now in the silver futures market. So we could all be bullish on silver today, correct? I think so. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Dr. Michael Berry and Chris Berry, thank you very much for joining me at the World Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. Our pleasure, Ellis. Thanks, Ellis. To listen to this segment again, find it on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Goldcorp. Fifty percent of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Main's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open pit methods. I'm a shareholder of the company, and East Main is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Don, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Ellis. Happy to see you again. Happy to hear you again. I'm happy to see you too, Don. I'm looking at an 8 by 10 glossy of you right now. I have it right here on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of selling going on at the moment, and I'm not one of those people. Do you think we're nearing a bottom? Well, some of the evidence certainly points to it. If you look at every chart of all the seniors, intermediates, juniors, etc., across the board, they've all been taking a shellacking, as we say in Canada. But for the first time this morning, we saw, even though gold was off and red, seniors started off red and then bounced green pretty heartily. So, you know, perhaps this is the sign where we'll look back in the mirror and say, well, that was it and we missed it. But I think some positive should be taken out of that. Does the price of gold, whether it's bullion or share prices, have anything to do with exploration or production? 
with regard to a company like East Main? Well, Barry Cook, one of the famous analysts, used to say, you know, the, the juniors should not be influenced as much by the price of gold because we're not producing gold. However, it is a retained enterprise value in the ground. So I guess there's clearly a relationship, but there's a little bit of a indirect relationship really at the end of the day. Now, if you were a junior that was not as successful, let's say, as East Main, and you had to do a financing right now, you'd be in a tough spot, right? And that's exactly the point, is that juniors that have not topped up their treasuries are certainly nervous, to say the least. Those that have topped up are in a position of strength. We've been fortunate for the past half a dozen years. We've been able to keep the company very strong in advance. Last year, we doubled our treasury for less than a 5% dilution. The placement price that we raise money at is more than double of what we're trading at right now. That's clearly an advantage for ourselves at the current point. Drilling is underway now at Clearwater. You're looking to expand your resource. You have a joint venture on one of your properties with Gold Corp. They're the largest investor in your company. You're developing your assets as a possible takeover candidate down the road. Well, as I think we spoke before, is that we've we've done an analysis of gold projects globally, and we are dealing with a project that is one of 13 in North America in terms of size and grade, and we're making it bigger. So Clearwater is a, in a unique circumstance as far as the project is concerned, and we have a very high-grade open pit resource, and there's ample evidence that we can make it bigger. And fortunately, we have a treasury in which we can do it. And the other thing that we have at our disposal is that we have a Quebec advantage, and that is even with depressed share prices, we are able to get a premium on any placements that we do because we're working in Quebec. And that just means you can stretch the dollars a lot farther. This year, we are doing 50,000 meters of drilling for a budget of $10 million. There's companies out there that are doing comparable drill programs at four times the price. And that's where we have the Quebec advantage. And you're in an area of Quebec that's comparable to what the Timmins Gold Camp was years ago. The reason we're there in the first place is geology. And the geology that we're dealing with is a mirror image of what we've seen time and time again in these famous camps. The only difference was when we started, you had to fly for a few hundred miles in order to get to the project area. Now you can drive to it. Infrastructure is what will make the difference on any mining project. And in our case, we have a permanent road that comes right to the doorstep of the project, and we're within several miles of the cheapest power in the world. When we're ready, when that project gets to the point where it's ready to develop, the infrastructure's already in place. Another astounding fact about East Main is that some of the gold grades you've identified have been astronomical. Essentially, with regard to grades per ton out of the ground and into a truck, your cost of production per ounce of gold will be dramatically lower than many other juniors in the space. Well, last week we were invited to a special conference put on by Macquarie called Making the Grade. And 17 companies have a unique circumstance in that they have high-grade projects and high-grade assets. Clearwater is an exceptional one in that the open pit grade is three to five times higher than most of these undeveloped open pit projects out there, which has the following repercussions. One is that the capex or cost to develop the project is 
far, far less than these low-grade earth-moving exercises. Number two is that your profits out of this is much, much better. So that for a project, in our case, if it's a mill of two or 3,000 tons per day, it's equivalent to a 20 or 30,000 ton a day mill of some of these other projects. So it's clearly an advantage to have grade. There are so many companies that don't necessarily have grade, and they don't have money in the bank. Even though your share price has fallen back during this pullback, it's still performing much better than many of these other companies without that grade. Well, across the board, we're not happy with the share price, but we have outperformed our peers, and we've outperformed the companies that are trying to develop projects. I think we will see that specific companies get in a position where you can take advantage of this. And we have money in the bank. We have a very healthy program going forward. We're currently drilling as we speak, and that's the fun part of our business. And that way you can grow your project and then get into a new league, a new tier. And that's really what the catalyst is going to be in terms of the main driver of the share price success. Then we've got companies in Quebec such as Cisco with a large amount of low-grade tonnage and a share price of around 740 or so. They are the most gold price sensitive in terms of these large open pit earth moving exercises are very attractive. We just saw IM Gold acquired Trelawney. It's a very early stage large inferred resource and their objective is to make an impact uh, in terms of total production. And that's why senior companies are looking at low-grade projects, is that they're big. They can make an impact on the bottom line for the big companies. But they are also very sensitive to the price of gold, more so than the uh, higher-grade projects. And the other thing that they're very sensitive to is other costs. And we can see that the cost of producing an ounce of gold is creeping up. In fact, it's more than creeping up. It's really escalating significantly. And I think part of the reason that the cost of mining an ounce of gold is going up is that active mines are mining lower grade material because they can. And that for it's essentially replacing resources with lower grade material that formerly was waste and now they can actually make money on it. In a cooperative market, what would really drive your share price north? Well, I think no matter what the end game price point is, is that as long as you can keep ahead of the curve, keep your project advancing and keep your treasury topped up at a premium, those things are things that are in your control and the rest of it will take care of itself. So this is how you managed to survive all these years. In fact, this is what Macquarie brought up in terms of when they introduced the different companies at this conference making the grade. They made a specific point of our company in terms of longevity, sort of you know, setting the bar very high and being able to last for quite some period of time and have stamina, given the prevailing headwinds that we've seen time and time again. The reason we've been able to do that is we've taken advantage of circumstances as they present themselves, such as being able to acquire management of your project when gold price is a tenth of what it is now. That's a little fortuitous. It's a lot fortuitous on our behalf, but each step of the way, we've been able to take advantage of the circumstances. We were able to buy the royalty from the flagship last year outright, and so it's sort of taking advantage of what the current market conditions are enabling you. This is a time where there are acquisition opportunities in the marketplace with other juniors faltering. 
Are you looking at any possible acquisitions for East Main? Well, actually, turn the table. The reverse is happening. Companies are screening projects that are out there, and just like we did, a number of projects filter to the top, either in terms of grade or in terms of growth, in terms of size, in terms of location. That's where our project is looking particularly attractive relative to the pack out there. In the meantime, what we're going to do is try to make it more attractive by drilling 50,000 meters. Your vision, Don, is to continuously bring value to the company. By drilling. Well, Don, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much, Alf. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, a gold exploration company trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the Chief Operating Officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX, as STBZF. Mr. Fear has over 25 years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration, acquisition, development, and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest's flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena mine, and exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Alice. It's always an opportunity to get the story out. Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, silver production is up 108%, and gold ounces are up 198%. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is that we're comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up and having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company. So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools? It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders. 
One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even the development stage or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to work. I implemented a program before we started construction of 70% local hire. Local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site. And we're at that now. So we actually got guys that are, are local guys that are at the foreman level, superintendent level, that are running the crushers, that are running the plant, that are working in the pit, and they really appreciate the job. It's a great opportunity for the community. We've got great community support. One other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport, over a million people, and it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre. You're on rotation. You don't get to see your families. So we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that. In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? What's happening in that direction? we got a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena, and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource, it adds mine life, adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and, and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a bit of a distance between the, the two sites. So that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first NI-43-101 resource in January, over 100 million ounces silver equivalent, about 60% of that silver, 30% copper, and 10% on the gold side. So there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. We've got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunities there, it's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver-gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online uh, you know, it's it's five years out. you got to get through all of your studies. But there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company. What kind of mine life are we looking at? Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So... I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years. While you're generating revenue through production, silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours. I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on. But uh, we're very bullish on silver.
Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years? We're always looking at other projects. Uh, we're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it. La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So... If I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds, but you definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those. So if you were to pick up another find or two, like Santa Elena or La Jolla over the next two years, you would not be displeased. Oh, no. No, it's it's all great growth for the company. And we're pretty lean and mean. I mean, our corporate office has eight people in it. We don't book out uh, penthouse suites and spend millions of dollars on our overhead uh, just to keep the upper management happy. So lean and mean. We got over 240 employees or contractors right now in Mexico. And that's a pretty tight team for the amount of work and accomplishment that we're doing right now. So to find uh, another one or two or bring into our stable another one or two uh, projects just means great growth for the company, uh, moving once again into a mid-tier silver-gold producer. And, and we have the management team and the qualifications to do that. Speaking of your management team, the man with a great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been a quiet and strong presence. Oh, definitely. And, and he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great stable force in moving this company forward. There was actually three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Barney Magnuson of Silvercrest. Beyond that uh, senior management level, there's uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice. I've been chatting with Eric Fear, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for an impromptu spur-of-the-moment interview with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-investor.com. Has the bottom come and gone in this market? Boy, it sure looks like it to me, Ellis, at least on the equity side. We've seen very low prices in the mining stocks across the board. Basis, the GDX and the other indexes, but primarily that one, huge volume a few days ago. And usually those kind of volume increases are 
evidence of short covering. There's been a lot of professional money out there on the short side in these mining equities particularly, as well as the metals. When they see the opportunity, they will cover their positions, and that has taken place. I'm sure there's probably some more short covering to do, but I think the bottom is in for the mining equities. As far as the metals are concerned, it's quite possible that the bottom is in as well. I've been saying to our members and also in the public domain that I thought that we'd see the bottom in June, and I'm not going to change that yet, but I think we're close enough to a bottom for all practical purposes. My call was that we'd see under 28 probably, and also consistently, especially for the membership where I actually go through the charts and circle and use arrows and all that kind of stuff, said, look, silver has gone in the $26 level two times, both times extremely briefly, what I refer to as a spike low. It comes right back up. There's only a few trades that are in that very area, and then it pops up and continues on up and starts building the base at a higher price. That's happened twice. So I am pretty sure that we're either at the bottom or very close to it, probably within a month or so. We had a rough almost six months in 2012 up until now. Are you bullish about the rest of the year? I am. You know, normally the metals bottom in the summer months, normally August. Uh, I think, again, it could be, you know, May or June. I'm kind of still biased toward June based on the work that I do, but regardless, this is close enough to the final bottom as far as I'm concerned. And the fundamentals for the metals have never been better. I mean, there's so many things going on in the global financial system and a global political environment that it just begs people to take a hard look at the metals. Some of the stocks that have fallen back in my portfolio in the last few months have dropped back as much as 50%. Should we be considering buying into stocks we already own that have been depressed as well as looking for new opportunities? Well, I've been saying for months that their stocks are undervalued and they can become more undervalued. And to buy in and plan to buy in, you know, through the summer. Having said that, one of the ones that's more speculative in the portfolio is actually here in town. I've known them for a long time. Been in the stock once, made about 800% on it, got back in it. It's underwater from where we recommended it again, but nonetheless, that stock was up like 25% yesterday. I uh, really think, uh, again, that this is the time to not be fearful. It's the time to be pretty aggressive and get into these. What do you buy? That's an individual choice again. I mean, the Morgan Report focuses on money, metals, and mining. We certainly advocate everyone starting their metals portfolio, physical metal first. But once that's done, then you can diversify into the mining companies, and we stress really depending on the person, but primarily getting the top tier cash rich unhedged mining companies as the top tier, and then the uh, mid tier growth companies, and then just bet a little to win a lot in the speculative side of the portfolios. How does one follow you? Now, there's lots of ways these days, as you know, with all the social media. I don't do them all, but I have a Twitter account. The Twitter account is SilverGuru22. I do link articles that I read daily, and these are articles that I've read and vetted that I think are important to stay attuned to the precious metals in the overall global economies. I also have a YouTube channel. A lot of time, effort, and money as far as the camera action that goes into it. These Some are actually professionally done. Most aren't. Most are just YouTube quality, but they're all pertinent to keeping everyone abreast, and that channel on YouTube is Silver Guru. And then lastly, the website itself is themorganreport.com, all one word, themorganreport.com. You go there and you can get on our free e-letter, which is weekly on the weekend, or if you are serious about these markets, you can look at three different levels of paid services. That's in the members-only 
side of the website, and there are three videos that actually outline exactly what you're going to get. Nowhere in this interview do I sense any negativity. Well, the market's been up for two days. You know, when I bought at the bottom, again, if this is the bottom, it feel pretty good. If it's not, I still feel good. I do believe strongly, again, that over the longer term, you're going to look back at buying silver under 30 or gold under 1600 and I've been consistently saying that for several months now to buy in there. And a lot of people are very smart in this industry, and few of them have been kind of advocating that, you know, these metals are ready for launch, and they're going to go up and all this. You know, I've stayed my ground as usual and said, you know, I don't see it that way. I think we have more consolidation, a sideways to downtrending market. And that alone, in my book, is worth something. And I'm not trying to sound like I'm better than or no more than or anything else, but I do want to make clear that I don't let much influence me. In other words, my work is my work, and I stick by it, you know, win, lose, or draw. Because, you know, people that perhaps were listening to some free information from someone else might have got in at, let's say, much higher prices and not had any cash left to take care of the opportunity that exists today. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.